From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. Hello, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist from the University of Pennsylvania. Today's episode is part of the special series, Titans of Dermatology, where we sit down with some of dermatology's most influential leaders to hear their stories and to reflect on their life path. I'm joined today by Dr. Gary Peck. Dr. Peck's laboratory research on vitamin A acid led to the development of the life-changing prescription acne medication isotretinoin, or Accutane. Dr. Peck has received numerous awards for his seminal work in the treatment of acne, cutaneous disorders, carinization, and skin cancer prevention, including the Distinguished Discovery Award of the Dermatology Foundation, the 1983 United States U.S. Public Health Service Meritorious Service Award, and the 2000 American Skin Association's Inflammatory Skin Disorders Research Achievement Award. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Peck. Thank you very much. Dr. Peck, can you start by telling Dialogues listeners about your childhood and upbringing? What were you like as a child? Well, it was a very difficult childhood in that my father died when I was three years old. He died suddenly of rapidly advancing pneumonia. So he was ill in the morning and he was dead at night. And it happened to be on December 7th, 1941, which was the day that Japan dropped the bombs on Pearl Harbor. And the net effect was that my mother's support group disappeared because my father's death became old news and the war was primary concern for everyone else. So I was immediately taken by my grandparents for the next 10 years. I lived with my grandparents. And then eventually when my mother remarried, then and my she and my stepfather got a house, then I moved from my grandparents to my mother's stepfather's house. So in effect, I had three fathers and two mothers. So it wasn't the typical childhood. I would have to say this, that my grandfather was a grocer in uh, the inner city of Detroit in the poorest neighborhood. And there was no mention of college when I lived with them. My stepfather, however, was an archaeologist, and he made a change in my life in that in the seventh and eighth grade, I was not in the college prep track. In in my junior high school, I was more in the track where you do um, wood shop and metal shop and print shop and mechanical drawing. And when he came into my life, he said, no, I have to be college prep. And in the ninth grade, I was transferred into the college prep program. And interestingly, my grades went from a C because I wasn't that good in in the shop and up to an A in the college prep classes. So I owe where I am today to my stepfather. And he he guided me into classical studies, you know, where I, I studied Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, ancient Greek uh, and Hebrew. And uh, I took courses in anthropology for me to understand more of what his life was like as an archaeologist. So that, that was my childhood. <laughs> What a story. Uh, Yeah, but also I lived in the inner city of Detroit, the middle of the city, where we had 
no neighborhood swimming pools or even playgrounds. We would play baseball or football in empty lots on the street. If there was no house, we would play on the lot where there was no house. So it was different from a suburban upbringing, sure. to say the least. I can imagine growing up in yeah. inner city Detroit, humble beginnings and encountering yeah. a lot of early adversity in your family and um sounds like you had a really a formative mentor in your stepfather who really kind of really redirected your path from perhaps a non-college path to one where you were studying the classical languages. And sounds like that really formed the foundation for your career. I certainly own that. So you went to college and how did you make the decision to go to medical school and eventually into dermatology? In high school, I was the top math and science student in my class, and I had intended to continue in science. I basically wanted to be a teacher, and I just enjoyed interacting with students, and it didn't matter what the subject was, I just wanted to teach. And as I kept taking science classes, it just became natural to, the symptological conclusion was to go into medicine after uh, taking the classes that turned out to be all the requirements that were needed to go into medicine. So I tried and I got accepted and I started medical school at age 19. I did not get an undergraduate degree because at the time you only needed 90 credit hours to get into medical school. My high school graduation was in January and fortunately I could start University of Michigan in February, which I did in 1956. And I finished the 90 credit hours in two and a half years, and I started medical school in September of 58. And then for medical um, school, how did you end up in dermatology? Okay, well, by the way, I, I should mention my tuition undergrad was $75 a semester, <laughs> and I had a tuition scholarship for $75, which lasted four years. And then it, since I got into medical school after two and a half years of undergrad. My first year and a half of medical school was paid for by the by the scholarship, which uh, and medical school tuition was $300 a semester. So I might expect a few tears in the, in the, from people listening to this when they pay their tuition checks. You can't even get a uh, textbook for $75 anymore. Yeah. So anyhow, my biochemistry professor in, in my lab of first year was Dr. Isidore Bernstein. And at the end of the year, he asked if I wanted to do research in his laboratory. And that meant staying in Ann Arbor during the summer. And you know, I thought that would be great. And so I worked in his lab and that summer and we designed a project. And what was interesting to me or amazing to me was that when we got the first set of results, he hinted at the idea of publishing them. And I said, what, publishing them? You know, you mean that this isn't published somewhere already in some textbook or journal? And he says, no, this is new stuff. And I said, really? I created new stuff? And I, I didn't believe him. And then gradually, after continuing working with him and getting new data, it did sink in that I was creating new findings. And to me, that was amazing. I was kind of hooked on doing research and finding finding something that was new, nobody else in the world knew but me. <laughs> that was very addicting. 
it sounds like that sentiment probably propelled you throughout your career as a researcher, but you didn't immediately go into research. Is that right? Out of residency, you initially went into private practice. No, 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 I didn't. I, Uncle Sam had something for me to do instead. I, I went into the Air Force for two years. Okay. During the Vietnam era, I was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Base outside Dayton, Ohio. Uh, it, it, this was before the Volunteer Army. Most doctors were drafted in for a two-year period. We were the main evacuation hospital from Vietnam for the wounded in the northeast sector of the uh, United States, of the contiguous 48 states. And so we had a couple wards full of young men who were either amputees or paraplegics as a result of the war. And, of the war. and I took care of their skin problems as well as seeing dependents who were coming into the Air Force clinics to be treated. But their, their camaraderie was great in the ward, but you know, once they went to their, back, to their towns back home, there was no support system for them. So it was a very sad experience in retrospect. Hmm. Uh, after the, I think it's, I saw six patients an hour, eight hours a day, every day for two years, and half the patients had warts. And I decided I would not go into private practice if that meant being a wart doctor. I didn't spend all my education in order to treat warts for the rest of my life. So that's what I thought private practice would be like. And so right after the Air Force, I went back to University of Michigan and did a uh, research biochemistry fellowship with, again with Dr. Bernstein and his laboratory. And then Dr. Lutzner, who is the dermatology branch chief at NIH, knew of Dr. Bernstein, and he called him and asked if there was a dermatologist who was working in his lab. And Dr. Bernstein said, me. And then Dr. Lutzner called me and offered me the position as senior investigator at the dermatology branch at NIH which I accepted and moved to Bethesda. Wonderful. And then at the NIH, you start studying vitamin A and its impact on initially other diseases like dairies and other keratinizing disorders, but then made the really the transformative discovery of the impact of Accutane or isotretinoin on nodular cystic acne. And this represented one of the most seminal, most important discoveries in our field of dermatology. How did your career or life change with this discovery? Not at all. No, there was at NIH, there was a premium on bench research, and clinical research was not primary. So if I had been at a university, it might have changed some, but at NIH, um, they kept asking me, how did it work at the molecular level? They were interested in how it worked rather than what it did. So my life did not change. The thing is, when I was so busy in the clinic, you know, I, I was treating patients from nine to five with no break for lunch. And I was too busy to work in the lab. So I actually loaned my lab to Dr. Peter Steinert, who was a premier uh, keratin chemist from Australia. And so I, I didn't have time to do brunch research at the same time as clinical work. But it was so exciting to, to see the findings of that I did in the clinic that I didn't miss the bench research at that point in time. And I, I should mention also, before I got into vitamin A, I had planned to continue my research on keratohyaline granules that I had begun at Dr. Bernstein's laboratory. 
But when I got to NIH, I found that Dr. Arthur Ugell was already doing the Carrota Highland research, and the two of us couldn't do the same thing at the same time. It'd be like we'd be in competition with each other. So I, I gave up that field of research, and Dr. Lesnar let me go to the library for six months, and I just read everything I could. And then I found an article from a laboratory in Cambridge University in England where they put chicken skin in organ culture and added vitamin A to the medium. And these were embryonic chicken skin. And the keratinization was inhibited and mucus secretion was created. So the vitamin A caused a metaplasia from the keratin-producing epithelium to a mucus-secreting epithelium. And I thought that was almost miraculous. <laughs> I, I wanted to find out how that happened. So that became my research project. And as a result, I became expert in everything written about vitamin A. And um, at the time, there was a researcher also at NIH in the Cancer Institute, Dr. Sporn, Michael Sporn, S-P-O-R-N, who found that he was studying vitamin A deficiency in hamster tracheas in vitro, and they would get uh, squamous metaplasia. They would, the mucus secretion would stop, keratin formation would occur, and he found that vitamin A would reverse the keratin squamous metaplasia and make it normal uh, mucus secreting again, but he found also that vitamin A deficiency would cause squamous metaplasia, and also cigarette smoking did, and vitamin A reversed both, and so he thought that vitamin A derivatives would be useful for cancer prevention studies, and he was hoping to test, and he found out that the most effective vitamin A derivative was 13-cis-retinoic acid. And it uh, was being kept on the shelf at Hoffman LaRoche in Nutley, New Jersey for a cancer prevention trial for lung cancer. And But there was some political opposition to that in the uh, oncology community. And I decided to just call up Hoffman LaRoche and ask him whether I could use it in dermatology. And they said, just send me a protocol, which I did, and it was accepted by committee. And they sent me the medication, and the rest is history. I started my first patient in the spring of 1976. My first patient had PRP hmm. and had been on high-dose vitamin A methotrexate with no response, and she cleared in a month on, on 13-cisretinoic acid or isotretinoin. It's amazing that it sounds like when you made this discovery, it wasn't perhaps as lauded at the NIH as perhaps I as a dermatologist would expect. Was there a moment or a time that you can look back on that really sank in that, holy heck, this is a huge discovery that our team made, and this is going to have a huge impact on, on our field and our patients. Was there any that you can recall film that way? There were two patients in particular. I had a lot of patients with disorders of keratinizations, Derriere's disease, lamellarctheosis, PRP, and particularly the Derriere's disease patients were really, really overwhelmed by their disease. It was very isolating. They often were infected and had a strong odor, and they were very isolated. And I think only one of my patients ever went to college because of the social isolation that they experienced. So I had one patient from Bonners Ferry, Idaho, I was treating, and he started to respond to treatment. And eventually, 
you know, we had to raise the dose. He, we had to treat with doses higher than for acne. And he was able to, again, socialize, be with people, be confident that he didn't have an odor that would be offensive. He was able to work again. And it was extremely satisfying for me as his physician, just to see his progress. And the same with, there was an acne patient from New Orleans who was referred to us. And it was the, she was the worst, most severe acne patient I've ever had. A, a woman, a female acne patient, that her face, the chest, and her back from her neck down to her waist were filled with huge bleeding nodules and cysts. And every day in the morning before she would go out, her mother and she would uh, put a bandage over every single one of her lesions so that there's no blood coming out on her clothing. But she had over 100 lesions like that. She was actually initially referred to NIH to the immunology department to see if she had some kind of immune defect causing this problem. And they referred her to us. And then when she was first seen by our group, our branch chief said on a scale of one to four, she has a 10 for acne, severity acne. And she cleared completely. And our protocol was we could only treat for four months because at the time, Hoffman LaRoche had no clinical experience with any other study uh, on this drug. And they had only tested it in animals for four months. So the FDA says you can only give it to people for four months because only it was only given to animals for four months. So we had to stop in four months. And we were extremely anxious as to what would happen to these patients as to whether they would relapse or not. And the patients with genetic disorders like their AIDS disease did relapse, whereas the uh, acne patients did not. And to me, that was almost a miracle. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah, I certainly think of isotretinoin as a, a miracle medication. We don't really even fully understand how it works to this day, you know, and but it does. And, it, you know, as you tell these stories, you're telling stories about how you change lives. And that's what we do in dermatology. We really transform quality of life. And isotretinoin, because of your work, has become one of the tools that our field has really been able to rely on and turn to to, to change the quality of lives for our patients. Yeah, before isotretinoin, the um, dermatologists would actually not welcome patients with severe cystic acne into their clinics because they didn't, they couldn't treat them. They would try everything they knew of, antibiotics and steroids and intralesional injections and so on. But the patients, it would not be unusual for patients who've been on antibiotics for 20 years before they started isotretinoin. And so they could not clear up these patients. And it was very frustrating to a clinician not being able to clear up something that was such a problem, major problem for these people. Right. Well, Dr. Peck, let me ask you this. When you reflect on your career, is there anything you would have done differently? I think I would have liked to have been at a university as opposed to NIH. But on the other hand, uh, I could not have done my studies anywhere else but NIH. At NIH, we could call up around the country and ask if you have a patient with epidermolytic hyperkeratosis or xeroderma pigmentosum or whatever. And then we could fly, if a patient would agree to come to NIH, we would fly them there at government expense. We would put them up at a hotel. We would feed them. We would not charge anything for medical care. Uh, if they had other conditions like hypertension or something, we would give them the hypertension medications at no charge. 
And at the beginning of our studies, since there were no prior publications on 13-cis-retinoic acid or isotretinoin, we actually kept them during the entire period of time, the four months, in the hotel in Bethesda, Maryland, at no charge to the patient. And there's no way we could have done this anyplace else in the world. And so I was very grateful to NIH for allowing me to do the studies that I did. But I think it would have been appreciated more in a clinical setting like a university. Sure, sure. Well, what a, an amazing, what a powerful story. Um, and certainly we are really appreciative of, of the impact you've made on our field. I'd like to wrap up our discussion today with your reflections and perhaps some advice. What advice do you have for dermatologists based on your experiences? Be persistent, work hard. If you find something, don't let other people talk out of it. Yeah, believe in yourself. I had moments where I began working on the chick skin study before I did the clinical work. And one of the people who was involved in hiring me to come to NIH told me that if he knew what I was going to do in terms of research at the time that I, he was interviewing me to hire me, he would not have hired me. Mm. He, he didn't believe. And then it, it turns out that uh, one, one year later after we spoke, I discovered Accutane for acne. Mm. But I, I believe that my project was valuable. I, I believed in 13-cis-retinoic acid. And I was kind of on my own in that aspect, but I stuck to it. Yeah, I, I believed in myself. I believed in my project. And I, that's my advice. You sure are glad that you believed in yourself because you proved him wrong and that has turned out to be a huge impact for us. So well, on behalf of Dialogues listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Dr. Peck. It's truly pioneers like you that have shaped dermatology for years to come. And we're fortunate to learn from your example. Thanks again, Dr. Peck. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more Dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to Dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.